that uh, we'll read the first chapter of this first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I think it was true of the Coca-Cola adverts years ago. It may still be true of Coca-Cola that they say about it, it's the real thing. You remember that, some of you? The real thing is Coca-Cola over and above any other fizzy drink. Well, we're not preaching about Coca-Cola this evening, but we are preaching about the real thing. And I want to ask the question tonight, uh, at least begin to answer the question, what does real Christianity look like? Uh, William Wilberforce wrote a book which was um, subtitled Real Christianity. And one of the passages he would have combed as he penned that book would undoubtedly have been this first chapter of First Thessalonians. It's one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. And uh, Paul had not been uh, very long in Thessalonica. He was on his second missionary journey. He was there for only three weeks or so until he was hounded away through persecution. And he went down to Berea and then to Athens. And uh, later on, of course, he wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica. But I just want this evening 
to look particularly at verse 5 as we answer this question. What is real Christianity and what does it look like? And there are several ways we could answer that question. But verse 5 tells us, I'll start in verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says, we know that he has chosen you. We, that is myself, Paul, he says, and Silvanus or Silas and Timothy and other Christian brothers who are with him, they can look at that church, at that local church in Thessalonica, and they can say with certainty, we know that God has chosen you. We know that your Christianity is the real deal. We know that your profession of faith is genuine. We know that we are not being deceived when we look at you and we say that you are definitely believers. You are definitely the Lord's people. And that is for us quite a challenging thing to think about. How can we know that? Surely the spiritual condition of an individual or of a group of people is a private, secret, personal, hidden matter. Do we have any sure way of knowing whether someone is a true believer or whether a group of people are true believers? Well, according to the, the Apostle Paul, we can. We can know. We should know. We should look for those signs. Now, we live at a time, don't we, where somebody's personal and private beliefs are often separated, removed from their public lives. We operate on different tiers. You have somebody's public persona and their private lives, and those two things can be very, very different things. But that is really a very modern and a very Western idea. I'm sure if we ask Malcolm and Louise, the more they get to know the folk where they're living, it would be quite, quite clear that in those cultures, what you believe privately and uh, what you're known to believe and to practice publicly are much more together than perhaps they are in our own culture. There's a thought for us. But in most areas of life, where something genuine exists, it shows itself, doesn't it? If somebody is physically ill, you can tell they're ill. If somebody is physically, medically well, you can, you can tell that they are well. Health and life and vitality are like that. If a gardener is looking after his garden, you can tell by looking at the garden that he's looking after it well. If somebody has a pet dog or a pet cat, you can tell that that dog or cat is in good health by the way they look and the way they function. 
If you go into any organization, you go into a school, you go into a, a company and you, you, you take a look at it and you look at the people, the, the employees, and you look at the rooms and you, you get a sense of this is a, a functioning place, a happy place, a prosperous place. Now, if that's true in all those areas, surely it must be true when it comes to spiritual life. You can tell when people have really believed the gospel. For we know, brothers, brothers loved by God, we know that he has chosen you. We can see that he's chosen you. It's clear that he's chosen you. Why do you say that, Paul? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction. Well, in that verse we see four, four observations, four things about that church that shows that they were genuine believers. And I'll go through them all fairly briefly this evening. Notice, first of all, the gospel came not only in word but it did come in word right the gospel came not only in word but it is in word the word is indispensable the word is absolutely necessary now you may have heard this saying i certainly have years ago less so these days christianity is not taught but caught. You catch it like you catch a cold. You don't teach people Christianity. You, people just catch it. They just pick it up. They, uh, they adopt it. They, uh, uh, they, they, they catch it off people. It just sort of spreads by a kind of uh, spiritual osmosis. And uh, somebody becomes a Christian by being in the right environment. Like you, you put something in the water, it becomes wet. You put something in the fire, it becomes hot. You put somebody in a church, they become a Christian. They just sort of become that way. They catch it. Now we have to be very, very careful there. The word of God is necessary. You don't catch Christianity without being taught the truth. Now it may well be that subconscious observations of Christians have an effect on you. That was certainly true of me and many others, that we knew Christians. We saw their lives. We saw their attitudes. We sensed their love for us. We sensed their joyful, serious uh, living and all of these things, and we noticed these things. But even then, there was, a, there was a mental action going on. But it is wrong to say that Christianity is caught and not taught. James says in his letter, chapter 1, verse 18, of God's own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He's talking there about the new birth. He's talking about being born again. And he's saying it's the word that needs to be heard. It's the word that needs to be taught. Before Paul came to Thessalonica, he was in another great uh, city in uh, Macedonia, and that was Philippi. And we know what happened in Philippi, don't we? He arrived in Philippi, 
And uh, he went to a place of prayer by the river, and there was a group of women there, and there was one there whose name was Lydia. What happened to Lydia? The Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she could pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Lydia became a believer. How? Did she fall asleep and wake up and say, oh, I'm now a believer? I've caught Christianity? Of course not. The Lord opened her heart to understand the words that Paul was speaking. She heard the word of God being taught. We need the word. It'll come in different ways. It might be a sermon. Some people are converted during a sermon. I haven't met many, but some are, which is encouraging really, isn't it? Some are converted as a result of a conversation that they have with another Christian. Some seem to be converted when they read a book or a booklet, or, or a tract. Some people are converted when they remember something that somebody said months or even many years before. Like that famous young man who became an old man. He'd heard John Flavel preach in Dartmouth in Devon in 1660 or so, and he went to America and became a believer some 85 years later when he went back in his memory to being a young boy. He remembered the word of God from his from his youth. Now that can happen sometimes. But this is the point. The gospel is a word. The gospel is communication. It is information. It tells us about God. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us about righteousness. It tells us about sin. It tells us about Jesus Christ who died and rose again. There is no faith without faith in what God has actually said. The gospel came to you not only in word, but it did come in word. But then there's a second point, isn't there, that we see. It came not only in word, but also in power. And that word power is the Greek word dunamis or dynamis, from which we get our word dynamite. The gospel had worked in Thessalonica like dynamite. It's a word that Paul often uses to describe the power of God in the resurrection of Christ, in the preaching of the gospel, in the bringing of new souls to life. It's dynamite. But there is a difference, isn't there, between dynamite and the dynamite of the gospel. Most dynamite, if you ever play with dynamite, I wouldn't recommend that you do, but dynamite blows things up. And it destroys order. It blows things to pieces. But here is a different kind of dynamite. Here is power that builds people up. It always does that. Or we could change the word slightly and say that the word of God came to these Thessalonians in a way that was dynamic. It was dynamic. It was working. It was moving. It was active. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, we read in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, that Paul was only in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. That's all we hear about. And during that time, he had a pretty rough ordeal. He was persecuted and hounded by many of the people in Thessalonica. 
but the word that he preached came with power. What was that power? Does Paul mean signs and wonders? He probably includes that. Yes, we know that Paul's ministry as an apostle was accompanied with, with, with healing miracles. He, he raised Eutychus, you remember, who'd fallen out of the window during a long sermon. He'd fallen asleep, dropped out of the window and died, and Paul had raised him to life. And people had crowded even to, to fall into Paul's shadow. And Paul had, had produced these healing miracles that we read about. That may well be included, but there's more to it than that. There was a power at work in the hearts and souls of the Thessalonians while Paul was preaching the gospel. It was an unseen power. It was an invisible power. But it was a real power. And I want to ask you this evening, do you know what I'm talking about when I speak of gospel power, spiritual power? A communication from God that is like electricity in some way. It comes into our hearts and into our minds and it gets into us and it works on us and it changes us. Just like on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached with this power. A power that caused the people to say as we thought about a few weeks ago. Men, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? We're cut to the heart. You think about um, Philippi and the jailer there asking the very same question. He was aware of gospel power. It's not something that can be mimicked. It's not something that can be churned up or, or manufactured. It's not a human power. I don't know if you've ever watched Christian films. and Some Christian films are excellent particularly more recent ones, the God's Not Dead type films. They're excellent films. But uh, it's very, very difficult to mimic gospel power. If, if you watch a film where actors are trying to, uh, trying to preach or, or sound evangelistic or to be pleading with people, you really can't get the same power there as you would if they were preaching for real. You can't transfer or translate genuine spiritual power from one setting into another. It's impossible to do it. It's a sovereign power. It's God's power. It's for the time and the place and the circumstances and the people there. And Paul is saying, when we came to Thessalonica, pressured as we were, stressed out as we were, persecuted as we were, briefly with you as we were, hounded away too soon as we were, Nevertheless, our word came to you, the gospel came to you in power. But we have a question, don't we? Can we explain that power? Well, that's the next thing that Paul says. Not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. What's the reason for all this? Why is it that sometimes a gospel message can come with this power? And then some other time, some other place, maybe through the same preacher, the same text, the same message, the same words, 
and they just fall flat. How often that's happened to me as a preacher. You you preach somewhere and you think there was a measure of power. You preach it again somewhere else and it's just like, well, it's not the real thing. It's it's flat Coke, which has been left out of the fridge for too long with the the top off the bottle. It's, uh, It's not worth drinking at all. It's not the real deal at all. It's just flat and lifeless. And that can happen sometimes, can't it? Well, what's the reason for this? It's the Holy Spirit. It's his presence. It's his personal, sovereign ownership of that gospel message. When Paul and his friends went to Thessalonica, the spirit was active. God was speaking. God was working. And when this happens, the human agency in preaching is almost hidden from view. The man who is preaching is virtually invisible. He's lost to sight. No one cares what he looks like or anything like that. No, they're listening to the Holy Spirit. They're listening to God. Paul realizes that. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, doesn't he? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. These Corinthian believers were besotted with personality. They were part of this personality cult of their own day. Celebrity preachers. I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. No, says Paul, you don't understand. If that's what you're thinking, you're never going to really understand what preaching is, what the gospel is, what ministry is, what conversion is, what life is. It comes in the Holy Spirit. He gives life. One of the creeds talks about the Spirit as the Lord and the giver of life. Where do we get our Bibles from? What is the Bible? It's given to us by God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not cleverly invented tales, says Peter. No, men wrote down these words as they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible you have in front of you are the words of the Holy Spirit. But the same Spirit is at work today. And remember again, he is the same Spirit who who raised Jesus from the dead. It's very important to remember that. Jesus was dead. The Spirit raised him to life. God, by the Spirit, raised him to life. The same Spirit's at work when people are dead today, breathing life into them. The dead bones, the dry bones, they receive their life from the Holy Spirit. What is real Christianity? It's where God's Spirit is at work. It's where men and women and boys and girls are divinely acted upon by the Spirit of God. And that should be the way that we pray for the preaching of the Word, that it would be accompanied with this real power 
that show it to be the real thing. So that when the preacher is preaching, God himself is preaching. Jesus Christ himself is speaking. And the listeners are hanging on his every word. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What does this mean? It means full assurance, full certainty, a sense of fullness, a recognition on the part of those who listen that, yes, this is the real thing. Yes, this is truth. Yes, this is substantial. Yes, this is entirely trustworthy. Yes, I am persuaded and convinced and convicted beyond any doubt that this is God who is speaking to me. Was it your experience when you first believed? It was certainly mine. This was the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I have no doubt. But a sense in my own mind and heart that the gospel I had received was a truth that nobody could ever dare to contradict. It came with such power. The pearl of greatest price has been found. I'm not looking for anything else. Here is reality. Here is solid ground. Above all, here is Jesus Christ himself. The one who fulfills all the ancient prophecies. Going right the way back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. Crushing the serpent himself. The one who is the offspring of Abraham and of David. The one who is the greater David who sits on David's throne. The one who is the son of God and the son of man. The one who is the sinless savior. The one who is full of love and grace who came into this world and gave his life for sinners like you and me. You know, when we hear the gospel being preached, and when these things are present, the word, the power, and the spirit, and that is when God's people are given this full conviction that these things are true. People suddenly start to listen. They stop being distracted. They stop being worried. They stop noticing Silly little niggling, distracting things around them. And they realize that this is substantial truth that needs to be believed. When Paul writes here about full conviction, he's using very similar language to what is used in the letter to the Hebrews. What's the great purpose of the letter to the Hebrews? Well, the author there wants all his readers to attain to this same Full conviction, full assurance, full certainty. I was at Catford this afternoon and uh, preaching a sermon I preached here back in May sometime, I think it was, uh, from Ephesians 4 on the mature manhood of the church in Jesus Christ, that we grow into that mature manhood in Christ. Well, what does that mature manhood actually look like? 
It is nothing less than this full conviction. It is the growth of every one of us and all of us together to that full assurance and conviction that the word of God is truth that I can live for and die for. It stands. It is certain. It is trustworthy. It is real. It is absolute. It needs nothing to be added to it, and nothing must be taken away from it. It is the whole counsel of God revealed in his word, given to you and me for our salvation, for our life, for our eternity. And it's impossible for any of us, I think, I hope, to read this passage, this first chapter in First Thessalonians, particularly verses, I suppose, well, all the verses really from verse, verse 3 onwards right to the end. Uh, we must say, isn't this what we long for Grove Chapel to be? Isn't this what we want people to say about Grove Chapel? Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That we don't need to necessarily go around and say, hey, did you know there's a church called Grove Chapel in Camberwell that you need to come to? but that those who live around us and who know us would be saying those things themselves because of what we are and what we have become. That may seem a long way off, but this is the goal that is set before us here, that we would be a people that God has evidently chosen to be believers, to be strong, mature, faithful believers, chosen by God, Approved by God, because the gospel came to us, not only in word, but in word. Oh yes, it must be in word, but also in power. A constructive, shaping, building, forming power. In the Holy Spirit, a spiritual power that is God himself, and with full conviction so that we are all convinced and assured and certain that the faith once delivered to us is the faith, the solid rock on which we stand, Jesus Christ himself, our hope, our rock, our Savior, our Lord. That must be our unashamed desire as God's people here. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, Spirit of the living God, we covet this testimony of the Thessalonian church for ourselves. We may feel, O oh Lord, that we are a long way from this right now. We may feel that very, very few comparatively know of us and know the gospel that we believe, and know the faith that we have, and are aware of us. We know, O oh Lord, that there are many activities we can do and do 
uh, to publicize and to advertise what we are and what we do and what we believe, especially in this bicentenary year. But we come to you and to your word, and we covet especially that the very phenomena of Thessalonica would be Grove Chapel phenomena too. The gospel coming in word, in power, by the Spirit, and with great conviction. Lord, pour out your blessing on everything that we are and do. Build up your people here. Help us to encourage one another with words like these, with promises like these. Help us to pray for one another and pray for the whole work of the church as it goes on and is carried on in various places. Be with us all as we go into a new week. We, we pray again for our brother Malcolm and our sister Louise and for the girls and for the child that is to be born. And we pray, Lord God, for your blessing, protection, help, guidance, refreshment to be with that family over these weeks and months while they are back here in the UK. And Lord, we pray for the believers in the country from which they have come, praying that you would keep and uphold them and may their faith be going forth everywhere so that all around will know that you are doing a great work among them as among us. Lord, in your rich mercy, in the name of Jesus, hear our prayers. Amen.